Okay. So we don't have a lot of time for banter today because I have like a lot of shit to get through. Um, I did this really deep dive. I thought initially I wrote seven pages for the first part of the episode. And then I was like, I'll probably write about like seven pages for the second part of the episode. And I wrote 11 pages. So (gasps) oops, (laughs) oops! I read two whole books and now you have to listen to it. And this this is is the Queers Queers for Fears podcast. podcast. And now we can say it. Now we have to get back in the habit of saying it at the same time because we have Marvin editing. Okay, so today we are continuing with Leopold and Loeb. And where I left off, where did I leave off? I'm scrolling back up. What were we doing? Uh, They were being questioned without representation. um, Because state's attorney Robert Crow was like, fuck these rich dudes, which honestly, a mood. And... Leopold and Loeb said later that they and or their dads asked for representation at some point and Crow like kind of blew them off. Anyway, so they like basically hand Crow all of the evidence that he needs on a paper plate. So now we are getting into the trial. And first I'm going to go through who all these people are. And I'm I'm going to periodically refresh your memories on them because there's a lot of names. I had to like look at my own list of the names to remember who everybody was as I was typing these. So Robert Crow is the state's attorney, and he's the one who was interrogating them in part one. He has two assist well, he has multiple assistant state's attorneys. The ones who are going to come up are Thomas Marshall and Joseph Savage. Now, who comes to defend Leopold and Lowe but Clarence Darrow, which you probably know his name from the Scopes Monkey Trial, which actually hadn't happened yet at this point. Um, he defended Scopes, obviously. He was known for taking on underdog cases, and he was a fierce opponent of the death penalty. And he got called into the case, partly because he was a close personal friend of the Loeb family, and also because Crow was so certain he had an open and shut death penalty case. And Clarence Darrow was like, nah. So Clarence Darrow uh, was hired by the Loeb family, and then the Leopold family hired Benjamin and Walter Bachrock, who feature occasionally. But of course, Clarence Darrow was so known for his, like, amazing speeches and passion and anti-death penalty stuff and bombast that he's going to feature more heavily. It's B-A-C-H-R-A-C-H. And I feel like I have heard that name be pronounced like Bachrock or Bacharach or what? Or anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. They're going to pop up now and again. And the judge was this relatively liberal judge named John Caverly. And Darrow was optimistic about Judge Caverly because, as um, the Leopold and Loeb files by Nina Barrett puts it, he had never voluntarily issued a death penalty, which I assume means he had never personally like decided on a death penalty. I, I assume he had sentenced someone to a death penalty if a jury decided, but he had not done it himself. Then there is just a buttload of alienists, like so many. So in the previous episode, I was talking about these alienists questioning them about whether they knew right from wrong. These are the alienists that the state's attorney Robert Crow brought in. And that's Hugh T. Patrick, Archibald Church, and William O'Crone. I'm not going to go over their credentials, but they're very good at what they do when I talk about the credentials. Clarence Darrow brings in Carl Bowman, CMO at Boston Psychopathic Hospital, and Harold Hulbert, a Chicago neuropsychiatrist, and the two of them wrote this extensive report 
looking into the psyche, psyches of Leopold and Loeb, like before the trial started. It's called the Bowman-Halbert Report. During the trial, he brought in Dr. William Healy, director of the Judge Baker Foundation, which studied juvenile crime. He had previously headed up the Juvenile Psychopathic Institute of the Juvenile Court in Chicago. He's based out of Boston. Dr. Bernard Gluck, former super of the criminal ward at St. Elizabeth's, as well as the psych clinic at Sing Sing. He was from New York. And Dr. William A. White, uh, superintendent of St. Elizabeth's Hospital and president of the American Psychiatric Association. Crow sarcastically called these three guys, because they're from Boston, New York, and D.C., the three wise men from the East. In court, members of the families were uh, Nathan Leopold Sr., obviously Leopold's father, Foreman Leopold, his older brother, who also went by Mike, and then Albert Loeb, uh, Richard Loeb's father, was too ill to attend, and uh, his mother Anna was tending to him at home. So his uncle Jacob Loeb and his brother Alan Loeb were there. And the Frankses, both Flora and Jacob, were also in court. Um, they had two other children, Josephine and Jack, but I believe they were like teenagers. I don't think they were in court. So I want to return to Abby's amazing observation that these are the original affluenza teens. Because I, as I was reading my notes for the second half of this episode, or as I was reading through the book for the second half of the episode, I found that they had an even more amazing name for what was wrong with these two than affluenza. The Chicago Daily Journal called it Dementia Jasmania, which they said, quote, peps up the ego of the individual until he imagines he is mentally what Jack Dempsey is physically, a super self able to outwit all other persons in the commission of crime and to outthink the rest of the world in, avoid- in avoiding its detection. And they're not wrong. That's kind of what the thing, that's kind of what the deal was, which we will come back to as they kind of try and unravel, like, who's the leader, who's the follower. There were a few other, like, problems with Leopold and Loeb suggested in the press. The the jazz life of gin and girls thing, and then um, the Chicago Daily Tribune quoted a Jewish spokesman, as they put it, which I was like, hmm? who said that the Leopold and Loeb families, quote, let their children grow up without any feeling of Jewish responsibilities. So, yeah, this is like, you didn't raise your kids right, you didn't imbue them with, like, traditional religious values. And uh, the editor-in-chief, at first I was like, is this just some weirdo trying to, like, kind of exoticize this crime and be about, like, well, you know, the Jews have these beliefs and yada yada, which would have prevented... No, because an actual, the actual editor-in-chief of the Jewish Courier, Dr. S. L. Melamed, emphasizes this point because he was concerned that if they didn't draw a line and kind of say, like, this is because they lack Jewish morals, they were worried that there would be an anti-Semitic backlash because all the families involved, including Leopold and Loeb, were Jewish. Meyer Levin, a Jewish classmate of Leopold and Loeb, who later wrote a novel based on the crime, Compulsion, which I'm also going to come back to later, he found sort of a dark twist to this. He said, quote, Beneath the very real horror that the case inspired was a suppressed sense of pride in the brilliance of these boys, sympathy for them in being slaves of their intellectual curiosities, a pride that this particular new level of crime, even this, should have been reached by Jews. Which I was like, if anybody who was not Jewish had said that, I would have been like, woo boy! But... I don't know. That's what my 11 thinks. And of course, you're like, there's got to be some kind of anti-Semitism or racism in here somewhere, right? Yes. <laughs> the Chicago Herald and Examiner had a guy opine on how you can tell Loeb has limited willpower because of his thin lips and Leopold's, quote, desires would be would more than likely be gross based on his, I'm very sorry, this is the original quote, thick and beefy lips. <laughs> We've got some phrenology type shit going on here. Hmm. Yeehaw, we've got, we've got fucking weird old-timey crime bingo. 
Leopold was initially positioned in the press as an evil misfit genius and Loeb as a good-natured fraternity boy. There's an oxymoron. Anywho, (laughs) that eventually gets turned on its head, and we'll come back to that. Nathan Leopold was characterized as, quote, an experimenter in human emotions, who believes that there are different rules for smart, high-achieving people who are, quote, above ordinary laws of mankind. And then Loeb was characterized as simply wealthy, like the affluenza shit. Quote, he has been raised in surroundings of wealth and never found it necessary to curb or suppress his emotional outlet, which... Well, so Bowman and Hulbert uh, do much more of a deep dive uh, than these armchair-like newspaper dudes. So, although he didn't think an insanity defense would work, Darrow wanted to find a biochemical basis for Leopold and Loeb's behavior. This was the cutting edge of neuropsych, and Bowman was chosen for his expertise in the quote-unquote ductless glands, e.g. thyroid, parathyroid, pituitary, and pineal glands. So Bowman and Hulbert investigate every aspect of Leopold and Loeb's lives, and everything but the most explicit material was quote-unquote leaked to the press. Was it leaked? Mm, allegedly what happened was part of it leaked, or it leaked to like some of the papers, and then uh, Darrow didn't think it was fair that those papers would get the scoop, so he passed along the information to the other newspapers, and it's like, oh, really? You care about like Chicago new- newspaper fairness beef? Um, a lot of people are pretty sure that Darrow just leaked the whole of the report because... It succeeded in eclipsing pity and sorrow for Bobby Franks with fascination with Leopold and Loeb. And that continued through the trial. According to historian Paula Fass, quote, The Hulbert Bowman report did not explain away the death of the Franks child, but it substituted the troubled bodies and childhoods of the killers for the tragic loss of Bobby and the remainder of his childhood. One could hardly read Hulbert and Bowman's reports and not be affected by the fragile loneliness of Leopold's childhood, scarred by feelings of physical inferiority, the sexual abuse of a governess, and the loss of his mother. So Loeb's governess, they blame the governesses for this, because, right, the the families have hired this defense team and these alienists, and so you're not going to blame, you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you, you're not going to blame the parents who hired you. So they blame the governesses. So Loeb's governess, Emily Struthers Bishop, Loeb and Emily were very close, apparently to the exclusion of Loeb spending time with other boys. And though she never punished him physically, she was strict and dealt out punishments promptly and somewhat harshly. Loeb said her word was law. Consequently, Loeb became an adept liar to get away with shit. And after he outgrew Struthers, she took over care of his little brother, Tommy, but she didn't get along with Tommy and she was dismissed. And after that, Loeb, apparently, according to him, he just ran wild as soon as his governess was out of the house. So he's already an adept liar from trying to get around what his governess wants. And then she leaves and he turns into a wild child. The alienists suggest that, and they also go into like the, I don't know, I suppose this is relevant, but they... They're like, hmm, Emily Struthers was single and she was a virgin for a long time, so she must be messed up. They decided that she has some weird... Yeah, I'm like, okay. They decided that she must have had some weird ideas about sex and marriage and that when she did get married, it must have been an unfulfilling marriage. I don't know if she told them this because they basically were like, Struthers clammed up around us. She would not admit to any weird shit. She would not say that Loeb ever did any weird shit. They were like, come on, lady. Like, give us the tea. We want to know what weird shit you did to this kid and like what weird shit you saw him do. And she's like, I don't know. I was this governess and he was a kid and it was fine. The alienists say that she made a scene at the Drake when visiting Loeb as a young adult and acted like a spurned lover and is still obviously jealous of any girls in Loeb's life, which I am like, nah. Ew. Loeb had a different governess when he was a baby and I only bring her up because she visited him in jail and guess what? She fainted, which is Abby's favorite thing about this all. <laughs> Abby's like, eat a snack. 
Take your vitamins. Loeb's fantasy life. They get into these guys' fantasy lives, and they appear completely unbothered about this when it's recounted in court, which I would just I would just shrink down into a puddle under the table if someone like talked about like the weird shit that I like fantasize about and I told it to these alienists and then they told the court with all this press coverage. But whatever, Leopold and Loeb weren't bothered. Around the age that he realized he could lie to his governess and get away with stuff, Loeb started fantasizing about being in jail and being punished and whipped, but in a way that was pleasurable because he was a famous criminal. He started fantasizing about committing specific crimes, and he derived great pleasure from the idea of being a criminal mastermind and the feeling of superiority he got from others others who didn't know that he was behind the crime. So this is, this is kind of what the newspapers were talking about. Like, he just, he just likes the thrill of having one over on everybody. Gross. The pinnacle of achievement in these fantasies was that he would pull off the crime of the century, which everyone would be fascinated by, but which would ultimately go unsolved. And some mm. of Loeb's actual crimes, pre-Bobby Franks, sprang from the time he spent fantasizing. They seem to have gone deeper into Leopold, or maybe more paperwork from Leopold survives because he outlived Loeb by several years. But uh, content warning ahead for child sexual abuse um skip forward a couple minutes if you don't want to hear that part leopold's governess sweetie was the total opposite of Loeb, and they still managed to blame both governesses sweetie i would absolutely blame um barrett points out that bowman and hulbert's classism and misogyny shine through in their report remarking on the way that she dressed and conjecturing as to whether she may have been quote-unquote feeble-minded um Sure, but like that's the least of my concerns when it comes to what they find about find out about Sweetie. Mm-hmm. So Sweetie apparently molested Nathan's Nathan and his brother Sam, um, bathed with Sam, encouraged quote encouraged him to wrestle in bed with her, both of them, and used it as a reward for good behavior. She would like show the boys her pads and her boobs, and she taught them nicknames for her breasts and nipples. I think her first language was German. Um, so she came up with like nicknames and she called her nipples like strawberries, for example, and taught them that. Um, she told them that their mother wished they had a figure like hers. They taught them to call the maid a whore. And she they, she was jealous of their interactions with other staff. Wow. All right. Yeah. A lot <laughs> going on. Uh, huh. hmm. His subsequent governess, Pauline Vandenbosch, was creeped out by Leopold killing birds for his collection. I mentioned in the previous episode he had 2,000 dead birds in his private collection. And once he shot at a bird and nearly struck a woman, Pauline says, quote, I upbraided him and tried to tell him of the consequences of such carelessness. I should give a damn, was his answer. Not sounding great. Okay. Leopold's mother, we're going full Freud, even if we even if we can't get the original. <laughs> we're going budget Freud here. Leopold's mother and her death also figures heavily into what they conclude about Leopold's psyche. So during her pregnancy with Nathan, Mrs. Leopold developed nephritis, uh, a kidney infection, from which oh. she never recovered and which killed her when Nathan was about 17. By his mid-teens, Nathan began to blame himself for Florence's illness and her later death. He absolutely idolized his mother. He says she was, quote, disgustingly and inordinately proud of him. She was apparently a philanthropist. Everybody loved her. Like, they interviewed other people to ask what Leopold's parents were like. And fucking everybody just loved Florence Leopold. And after she died, Leopold, I, mean, I always call him Leopold. His name is Nathan, but Leop, he has two first names syndrome. Very sorry. Uh, <laughs> Nathan tried to look to trust him. No. Can't trust him. Nathan tried to look to his aunt Bertie, who took over household management after Florence's death as a mother figure, but his other brothers chastised him for this, being like, you know, how dare you? Our mother was a saint and now she's dead. You can't have another mother figure in your life, basically. That sounds healthy. 
And he claimed that the death of such a sterling figure as his mother caused him to believe that God is cruel and senseless and that there's no such thing as right, wrong, or justice. Quote, he feels that the only wrong he can do is to make a mistake and his happiness is the only thing in life that matters at all to him, end quote. They asked him if he had considered taking his own life while in jail, and he said that he he wasn't interested, uh, partly out of duty to his family, and because he thought the trial would be interesting. Oh. Yeah, so he has this very, like, okay. stone-cold public persona, but uh, the alienists were like, deep down, he's still deeply haunted and scarred by his mother's death. Then there's this section of the report that is just all caps, sex life, and all caps, love life. Hello. Yeah. So <laughs> this, is what I, this is what I woke up for. <laughs> so give me that sweet, sweet sex and love life section. You're not even going to believe. So although Leopold, <laughs> he later wrote glowingly of Susan Lurie, who was his girlfriend at the time. I imagine this must be right. These are like very important early 20th century Chicago families. I imagine this must be part of the like Lurie Children's Hospital Lurie family. Oh. I didn't check her connection, but I am almost sure that is the case. Yeah, that sounds about right. So he was dating Susan Lurie, but Bowman and Holbert conclude that he, quote, has never been attracted towards the opposite sex and that he only ever chased girls, contemplated marriage, and he never contemplated marriage to anyone specific. Just, you know, someday I'll get married. They said that he only ever contemplated that kind of stuff because it was the done thing, even going so far as to wonder if he would ever be able to satisfy a wife. Bowman and Holbert say that Leopold generally looks down on women and considers them intellectually inferior. Leopold did at least plan to have children one day because, quote, the germ plasm is the only kind of immortality there is. What does that even mean? He believes that having kids is the only, is like the only meaningful form of immortality. And of course, someone with like this big an ego thinks that he should be immortal. Ugh. And then there's also the king and slave fantasy. I, okay. So this turns the Leopold Loeb dynamic, as it appears in the press, initially anyways, on its head. The phrenologists quoted in the press even start to point to physical characteristics that show that Leopold is weaker than Loeb, intellectually and sexually. So this fantasy started apparently after he saw his older brother in a military school uniform. And this fantasy has several variations, but it goes something like this. There is a king, and he has a slave who is very devoted to him and repeatedly saves the king's life, abnegating himself of all offers from the king to award him his freedom. The slave is the strongest man in the world and very handsome, and when the other slaves are chained, his slave is this, this capital S slave is only bound by a thin gold chain he could easily break. Leopold says, and he disputes this later, um, apparently he tells Bowman and Hulbert that he is sometimes the king, but 90% of the time Leopold is the slave in this fantasy. So he's... He says this to Bowman and Holbert, apparently, but he vehemently denies this um, when he's later being deposed for a lawsuit against Meyer Levin, the guy who wrote Compulsion, the novel based on the crime. Mm -hmm. At the same time, over the course of his life, Leopold often picked out men around him who he liked to slot into the slave role in the fantasy, a camp counselor when he was 11, all the way up to about a year before the crime. He usually went for, quote, large, muscular, or beautiful, sort of like Ivy League looking guys. He eventually slotted Loeb into the role of slave, including ascribing to him characteristics such as athleticism and good grades and intelligence, which he just really didn't have. Oh. So Leopold and Loeb had committed actually a lot of crimes together by this point. And I, I wrote in my, I literally wrote in my notes, can you imagine getting away with all this? So it's, it started with cheating at cards. It escalated to stealing cars and joyriding, throwing bricks through the windows of other cars. 
uh, faking fire alarms, um, an actual arson of a shack in a vacant lot. Oh. They, at one point, made a plan to rob a friend's wine cellar, but they couldn't find a way into the house. And they also, there were these four crimes that were just noted in the report as the ABCD crimes, which were four crimes that Loeb alluded to, but that the alienists found it, quote, forensically inadvisable to ask them about. However, the police chief at the time, Chief Hughes, had his eye on a few recent cases that he thought might fit the bill. So there was this guy, Charles Ream, who claimed that Leopold and Loeb had been the ones who, uh, content warning again for more sexual violence, who kidnapped, chloroformed, and castrated him a few months earlier. Uh, Chief Hughes thought they might also have been involved in the murder of the University of Chicago student Freeman Tracy, which occurred in November 1923. They, he thought they might have been involved in the disappearance of Melvin Wolfe, who disappeared in April 1923. He was last seen two blocks from Leopold's house, and his body was found in Lake Michigan in May. Louise Holy filed a suit against Leopold and Loeb, claiming they kidnapped and raped her in February. And Chief Hughes also thought, and we should honestly look into this crime for a different episode, uh, Chief Hughes thought they might have been involved in the Ragged Stranger case, which is when this victim was found dead with his hands and face cut off. Anyway, so those are just a, a few of the crimes that occurred around the same time that Chief Hughes thought might have been the ABCD crimes, which the alienist decided it was forensically inadvisable to get more details on. Mm. And then the straw that apparently broke the camel's back was while Loeb was in a fraternity at the University of Michigan, the two of them robbed the frat house. They brought guns, rope, and a chisel wrapped in tape, which you'll remember a chisel was the murder victim in the Bobby Franks case, to subdue anyone who tried to stop them. Now, Leopold and Loeb had a huge blow-up fight after this frat house robbery. Realizing that they have too much dirt on the other, they make a pact set to expire June 11th, 1924, when Leopold is supposed to board the Mauritania for a trip to Europe. The pact, solid, the pact solidifies the king-slave relationship. Leopold is, quote, to be absolutely under the orders of his companion, end quote, with exceptions for really trivial stuff, stuff that could make him look silly, or stuff that could get him in trouble with his family. And the code word, along the lines of, like, Simon says, the code word to make it clear that this was, like, a command under the pact was Loeb was supposed to say, for Robert's sake. Now, what did Leopold get out of this deal? We will come back to that. They also obviously question Leopold and Loeb about each other. <laughs> All these <laughs> ominous, we'll come back to it. I'm well, like, okay, I'm writing will, a list. This will <laughs> come to fruition. <laughs> Leopold claims that he didn't really want to kill Franks, not because it's wrong, but because it sounded dangerous. And he says that he tried to throw wacky ideas into the mix uh, to delay the crime until June 11th, when the pact would expire and he would go on his Euro trip. He says he was horrified by how hard it was to kill Bobby, but jo Loeb just laughed and helped him regain his cool. Loeb confirms mm. that he remained calm and collected and had to calm down Leopold. He also says he got less excited about the crime in the week leading up to it, but they had already done so much planning and he wondered what Leopold would think of him if he tried to back out. Loeb says of Leopold, quote, I have always been sort of afraid of him. He intimidated me by threatening to expose me and I couldn't stand it. He says that he believed Leopold to be a bad influence and thought about shooting him, but said he couldn't ever pull off any of his crimes alone and certainly couldn't kill Leopold alone. But he said if he could snap his fingers and Leopold would drop dead as a consequence, he would absolutely do it. Leopold and Lowe also initially considered kidnapping a bunch of different people. They initially considered kidnapping Tommy Loeb, uh, Richard's younger brother. Oh. Yeah. You want to know why they, they crossed that one off the board? Is mm. because he was like, well, then I'd have to spend a lot of time at home while everybody is like looking for the body and stuff. And that just the logistics of that wouldn't work. That's that oh, was not a big reason. Not that he's your own fucking brother. He's apparently that. his favorite brother. But that was it was the logistics that that took Tommy out of the running. Jesus. 
They also considered kidnapping one of their fathers, but then they were like, oh, because of course this is the 1920s and it's not like women are allowed to have bank accounts, really. They considered kidnapping one of their fathers, but they discounted that because then who would get the ransom money for them? Uh, They also considered kidnapping (coughs) just like a random kid that Loeb didn't like. Um, They also considered, content warning again for sexual violence, uh, they considered kidnapping and raping a woman based on one of Leopold's fantasies of German soldiers attacking a French girl. Loeb said no. Loeb suggested strangling Franks jointly with a rope. So they, like, tie a rope around Bobby's neck and they each pull on one end. And this actually, uh, Hitchcock's rope in 1948 is kind of based on the Leopold and Loeb crime. And that's actually how they how they commit the murder in rope um, to make them equally complicit in the death. Uh, mm-hmm. But Leopold didn't like it. He also suggested chloroforming him to death. Loeb said no to that. So they went through, like, kind of a lot of options for such <laughs> a random is, oh. choice of kid. This is premeditation to the nth degree. Seriously. Uh, there's no way that you can prove that it wasn't a planned crime. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, the alienists conclude their report being like, don't worry, their families did nothing wrong. Like, these issues are not heritable. Like, it's not like Josephine and Jack and Tommy and Form. It's not like their siblings' kids are going to have these problems. It's totally these governesses who are completely different people but responsible somehow for these dudes committing the same crime. It's always the woman's fault. <laughs> Especially a poor woman who's employed by the family. Right. So, I mean, okay, like, the sexual assault, that... That yeah, is that, awful, that, and that is her fault, but... Yes. However... <laughs> you don't have to murder a child over it. Yeah. Hot take. Hot take. (laughs) So there was tight security for this trial. There were cops guarding the streets and the sidewalks around the courthouse. Only those with a pink ticket signed by the judge would be let in. You would take an elevator to the fifth floor, which was lined with two more rows of cops. Go up the stairs to the courtroom where there are three more guards to check your ticket. According to Genevieve Forbes of the Tribune, quote, it's harder to get through than Ellis Island. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Robert Lee, also from the Tribune, said, quote, there were some 600 journalists at the Democratic Convention in New York. It is apparent that they all came here. Sounds like it was also harder to get into the, the Capitol building. But, you know. <laughs> 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 Neither here nor there. <laughs> Just saying. So the courtroom is completely packed with journalists because they all want to hear Clarence Darrow. And Clarence mm-hmm. Darrow delivers. He drops a fucking bombshell. He says, quote, we know, Your Honor, the facts in this case are substantially as have been published in the newspapers and what purports to be their confession. And we can see we have no duty to the defendants or their families or society except to see that they are safely and permanently excluded from the public. Of course, after that is done, we want to do the best we can for them within those limits. We have determined to make a motion in this court for each of the defendants in each of the cases to withdraw our plea of not guilty and enter a plea of guilty. So everybody is like, what? Like, everybody's getting on the horn to, like, newspaper HQ or whatever. Because everybody, everybody was expecting a not guilty plea. Probably not guilty by reason of insanity. And, of mm-hmm. course, if you plead guilty, you can't plead insanity. Which, we're also going to come back to that. <laughs> so Darrow shrewdly counted on Judge Caverly, whose term was almost up and who had never voluntarily issued a death sentence, as I mentioned before, being less likely to issue a death penalty to a jury. Right? Than a jury. Right? So... We're going immediately to the penalty phase, which the judge decides. So now, right, obviously any jury pool has been heavily tainted by the coverage of this. Everybody's aghast that a little boy died. He's like, if we try this in front of a jury, they're absolutely going to hang them. Yeah. He's like, but I don't, he's like, but I think an individual judge, especially one who has never issued a death penalty, I think an individual judge is going to feel the weight of that decision more heavily than 12 angry randos. Yep. Because when it's 12 angry randos... 
you can be like, well, it wasn't all my decision. Yeah, ex- exactly. Execute these people. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, he was kind of. He's like, if we try this insanity defense, there's no way it's gonna fly. So mm-hmm. yeah, he is hoping that if they just put it in front of a judge with the guilty plea already in front of him, he's gonna say life is fine. Thanks. <laughs> However, of course, as in a penalty phase trial, you are allowed to introduce mitigating factors, which will influence, right? The judge has, under the statute, the judge has a range of punishments that he can issue. So Darrow is like, I want the judge to consider in possibly mitigating their sentence the fact that they pled guilty. You know, we didn't put everybody through a jury trial and all this hoopla. Their age, because they're 18 and 19, and quote, evidence as to the mental condition of these young men to show the degree of responsibility they had, end quote. So Darrow had successfully used this guilty but still disturbed strategy. That's what I'm calling it, <laughs> right? This not 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 guilty by reason of insanity, guilty but still messed up strategy. Nine years earlier, with Russell Pethick, who killed, I believe, a, a woman and her young son, and he reminds the judge that quote the statute provides that evidence may be offered in mitigation of the punishment. So Crow doesn't like this. <laughs> He basically, he's like, and he's a little bit obtuse about this, but to be fair, Crow, mm, I don't know. He has, he has some opinions on, he's the state's attorney, right? He has a vested interest in, in giving these guys the harshest punishment possible so he can win re-election and he can, you know, tell everybody, oh, I really cracked down hard on people who are going to hurt your children. Yeah. And they were also really worried that depending on how these people were punished, you know, everyone's going to try to murder somebody just because they can. Right. Yeah. Like, that's, they had to like... <laughs> at least that's the picture that Darrow wants to paint. Yeah. Yeah. So Darrow is basically like, you can't have your guilty plea cake and eat it too. Like either they, <laughs> if they're, if they're nuts, then they're not guilty. If they're guilty, then you can't say that they're nuts. He says, quote, for the defense to say they attempt to introduce alienists to testify regarding the mental condition of the two slayers would be going clearly outside the rules of evidence. It wouldn't. There can be <laughs> there can be no insanity for a person who pleads guilty. There is but one punishment which will satisfy the prosecution. All our efforts will tend toward that one goal. They have thrown themselves upon the mercy of the court, and we will demand that they be hanged. So Darrow is be or not Darrow Crow. He's being a little bit dense here because yes, mitigation is a real thing. Like you can say that someone has like issues, and that, it, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily like meet the legal definition of, in- of insanity. Like if you're not guilty right. by reason of insanity, part of that is like, you don't know that what you were doing was wrong. Or if you did, you didn't believe that you could have stopped yourself. Like, I, f- I feel like just spitballing. I'm not, an, I'm not an attorney and I don't work in criminal law, but right. Like an insanity defense is a lot about right and wrong and not so much like, is there literally anything wrong going on in your head? So mm-hmm. Crow is, Crow is being a little bit deliberately dense about this, but he has something up his sleeve, which doesn't really end up helping him. But I can kind of see why he was extra skeptical of this. As I'm as I'm writing this, I'm like, you don't don't pretend to be dense. You're the state's attorney. You know that they're allowed to do this. This is not outside the rules of evidence. But <laughs> there is some evidence which I, I don't know if it meets the legal definition of evidence. There there is there is there is some paperwork. Let's say that Crow is thinking of here. That he's like, mm, mm, are you are you trying to have your cake and eat it too? Hmm. Anyway, Crow's opening statement goes into, for Darrow's taste, way too much gruesome detail, and Darrow calls him out. He says, quote, In all the cases with any prosecutor, it seems to me, who is interested purely in administering justice, it would not have been possible to go into all the details that have been ma- that have been gone into this morning and make all the covert threats that have been made. And the covert threats are, yeah, basically like, if we don't hang these guys, then all this other bad stuff is going to happen because yep. we're setting a bad example. 
So Crow and Darrow are already like pissing each other off real bad. It's going great. He suggests that. <laughs> I just love this because Crow is being dense. And then he's like, listen to all this gross stuff. And Darrow was like, come on now. This is obviously just for the pathos. Can we stick to administering justice? Don't you care about justice, Mr. Crow? And it's just, oh boy. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you men aren't dramatic. So Darrow suggests that anyone experienced in criminal law knows that it does no good to try and attach to a crime the weight of being the most heinous in history, the most the most heinous in Chicago history, the most heinous slaying by two men, whatever. Like, stop trying to add these crazy superlatives for it, and that it's not going to bring Bobby back or heal the community to do it here, nor for the state to kill two teenagers over it. And Darrow, for his part, warns against, quote, stirring up anger and hatred in this community that may result in many other crimes. So I don't know if he's necessarily here talking about revenge against the Leopold and Loeb families, if he's alluding to anti-Semitic backlash, but basically he's like, let's not get everybody all riled up here by unnecessarily going into detail that we already know just to make them sound extra heinous. Like, that's not what we're here for. We've already decided they're guilty. So the state's witnesses. There are 81 witnesses for the state, and it took a week to get through them all. I am not going to tell you who all the 81 were. I do not know. That would take too much time. 81? We're just going to go through the highlights. So, yeah, I was like, a journalist friend whom Loeb encouraged to go looking for the drugstore where Jacob Franks was supposed to go as part of the random goose chase comes up. You know, like I mentioned earlier that Leopold and Loeb were like, oh, what if we uh, look for the drugstore where Jacob Franks was supposed to go? So a journalist friend talks about that and how excited he was because he's such a true crime burf. It's still funny. I'm sorry. Abby was like, la- Abby was laughing when we recorded that. And then she laughed like alone in public listening to this episode when I said true crime breath. I don't know why. People were staring. <laughs> it's not good. But uh, I did change the Patreon tier to be true crime breath because I think it's great. <laughs> Just excellent. Professor Ernst Putzkammer also comes up. He is Nathan Leopold's criminal law professor at the University of Chicago. And he says that a week after the murder, Nathan Leopold came up to him, asked him just hypothetically about the ramifications of kidnapping with it. He's, he is asking about the Franks case, but he's just acting, asking as though he's like interested in like the scholastic legal implications of this. Right, 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 right. So totally like, chill, unrelated to my personal life. Asking for uh-huh. a friend. I mean, not a friend. I don't know who did it. Um... <laughs> He's, like, asking about the ramifications of, like, what if they kidnapped them but didn't intend to kill him? Like, what if he kid- they kidnapped him and did intend to kill him? What if they, uh, quote, suppose that they're suppose that that intent were simply to take improper liber- liberties with this boy? I understand that this is a misdemeanor here in Illinois. The short answer, kidnapping is still a felony on its own. So, like, if you yeah. commit a misdemeanor on top of it like that, you still committed a felony. Don't, don't even fucking think that that's going to help if you didn't I intend just... to kill him. Well, also, you're a dumbass and didn't cover your tracks enough for people to think that this was just a kidnapping gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And even if it is a kidnapping gone wrong, that's still, I'm pretty sure, also not a lawyer, hello, I'm pretty sure that's still capital murder. Because <laughs> right, you're committing it's... a felony while the death happened. Yeah, that was the other thing. Is He was like, well, you know, if you if you're already committing a felony and you do other stuff, like, again, I don't know exactly the sort of... Um like the way these stack, but the law professor was essentially like, well, you're fucked because you did all this while committing a felony. Right. Gonna brush off my true crime bruv shoulder (laughs) there on that one. 
so Kirk Mitchell, I mentioned that there were three teachers from the Harvard School brought in for questioning. Um, at, and at the time of this conversation, Kirk Mitchell, the one, the teacher who was so scarred by what happened to him in custody that he later left town, he is in custody at the time that Professor Putkamer and Nathan Leopold have this conversation. And Putkamer is, they're like, wow, you know, Mitchell was arrested. Can you imagine? Because Putkamer says he doesn't believe that it could be Mitchell. But Leopold that says Mitchell has, quote, solicited boys to improper sexual relations with him, including Leopold's own brother. And on his way out of the room, Leopold says, I wouldn't put it past that man, Mitchell. I would like to see them get that fellow. But I don't say he did it. All right. Okay. All right. A new year brings a new beginning. For all my listeners that own a business, I want to tell you about FedEx Office. If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. We are teaming up with FedEx and PodGo to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. The state also brings up William Crott and James Gorland, the arresting officers, who say that Leopold originally had a plan to potentially take his own life in jail uh, by having headache powders brought to him, one of which would actually be strychnine. He says they that if he had known Leopold, I'm sorry, Leopold says that if he had known Loeb would confess, he says that he would have uh, t- he would have gone down like shooting the cops when they came to arrest him. Gortland says, I asked him as to whether he was sorry for Robert Franks, and he says, not at all. I asked him if he was sorry for the Franks people, and he said, I don't give a damn if they would croak this minute. Up to the age of eight years, conscience was drilled into me, but after the age of eight, I drilled that conscience out. Murder in my code is not a crime. My crime was in getting caught. All right. Not sounding great. So he's like, murder's not bad. Getting Getting caught caught is bad, bad, right? Like such three-year-old fucking logic. Anywho, (sighs) not the three-year-olds murder people. Anyway, that wasn't a great analogy. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Marvin, maybe cut that. (laughs) (laughs) Watch, Abby's going to come back next week with like a three-year-old who committed murder and be like, I actually... I thought of a six-year-old. I can't think of anything under six. six. Continue. Jesus. All right. So defense witnesses. First, we're going to call the alienist Dr. William A. White from the stand. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's, it's the battle of the alienists. Instead, they argue for two days over 250 pages of court transcript about these fucking, as Crow calls them, the three wise men from the East. Like, if they're... If they're credentials are no just if he can even present like these kids are messed up as mitigating evidence right because pro is still on this shit about like well if you're gonna present evidence that they're messed up then you should have said that they were not guilty by reason of insanity you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too yeah you you can't try and be like oh i'm gonna get around a jury sentencing them to death and then i'm still gonna say they're messed up and that's why they shouldn't be punished as harshly like crow doesn't think that's fair which he's wrong it's totally allowed but whatever yeah Um, Do you know how long this trial was? It lasted, I believe it started in June. Mm -hmm. And then 
it went through, I want to say like August, and then Caverly took two weeks to decide, and I think he sentenced them in September. Jeez. Okay. So as the Chicago Tribune put it, quote, if the state's evidence is sustained, Nathan F. Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb are scheduled to go down in legal history as a pair of the country's most notorious murderers. If the defense has its way, they will go down in medical history as two of the world's most remarkable examples of abnormal psychology. So they're trying to call William White to the stand. And for the next two days, William White has to sit around and wait for them to hash this out. And he apparently even appears to doze off in court because this is this is pretty fucking boring because they're literally just citing like case after case like saying you can't do this yes you can do this rules of evidence blah 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 and so the poor guy who was originally well, that called does to the stand, sound boring yeah he has to sit through two days of this waiting for him actually to be allowed to be called to the stand and he's like <laughs> you know it's you can't not air you can't see but ellie is dozing off it's a courthouse in june in chicago like ugh, <laughs> so yeah. bad for this guy yeah they so, didn't have air conditioning in there and everybody had to wear suits and shit uh and Crow mm-hmm. tries all these, speaking of bad analogies, Crow tries all these bad analogies. He's like, well, insanity is a defense, just like an alibi. He asks the judge, would you let them plead guilty and then come up here and try to put forward an alibi? And the judge is like, well, they're not trying to put forward an alibi, so that doesn't fucking matter. He's like, and they're not trying to play, plead insanity. And if they if they did, he's like, I could tell them to withdraw their guilty plea and try an insanity plea. The judge is like, I have a right to hear that information and make that call. Mm-hmm. Crow says, quote, there are no degrees, if your honor please, in responsibility. And Caverly goes, quote, oh, yes, there are. <laughs> Good one. Me as a judge. <laughs> and Crow is like, if the evidence isn't to show that they're insane, quote, well, then what is the evidence for? What are they going to show? And Caverly goes, quote, you will have to listen to it. <laughs> they have said that they are going to put evidence on in a mitigation of the crime. Our statute fixes three or four different penalties. Um, as a side note, uh, life with a minimum of 14 years is the lowest and obviously death is the highest Caverly says there must certainly be degrees of murder Bacharach points out that the question of insanity as I as I said is about whether the defendant knows what if what they did was right or wrong and he reiterates that they're not trying to litigate the legal issue of insanity so for, for two two days 250 pages of court transcript they have they argue about this and uh assistant state's attorney marshall is citing cases to support their beef with using it as mitigating evidence Bachrock is insinuating that crow is trying to tell the judge how to do his job and crow and darrow are delivering stirring speeches which are quoted extensively in the book but this part is boring and so i'm not quoting them here okay so they decide (laughs) that they can do this dr white comes to the stand for real he says that Loeb is just as stunted emotionally as he is gifted intellectually, and that he lacks the ability to separate his criminal mastermind fantasy life from the w- real world. He says that Leopold, quote, very early in life developed a feeling of antagonism toward the tender emotions because they made him suffer, end quote, and that he built up his own philosophy in which positioning himself as intellectually superior to everyone was the most important goal, the highest good. And this gap between their socio-emotional and their intellectual development, quote, throws the whole personality out of balance, end quote, and made them socially maladjusted. <laughs> as part of this, he talks about, like, what Leopold and Loeb uh, say they're going to do, like, if they're sentenced to death, if they're sentenced to life. If he, was sentenced, if he was sentenced to death, Leopold planned, quote, to write down 10 word riddles to be placed in a safe deposit box, after which he intended to appoint a commission of scientists to try to get in touch with him after death, end quote, in case he was wrong and there was actually an afterlife. Like, really? That's your chief concern? <laughs> Similarly, <laughs> according to the Hulbert Bowman report, Loeb said about the possibility of being hanged, quote, well, it's too bad a fellow won't be able to read about it in the newspapers, end quote. Like, again, uh, really? That's 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 your chief concern about being executed? Hmm. Okay. 
So on Cross, Crow asks him about the initial report, saying Leopold and Loeb were insane. What? White says he doesn't have any such report. And so at the time, it was just kind of glossed over. But I, this is why I started feeling a little bad for Crow. You know, he's, I I've initially thought he was being very obtuse, being like, well, you can't, right, you can't say that they're insane if, you, if they pled guilty. And they're like, we're literally not trying to say they're insane. This is mitigating evidence, not rising to the legal definition of insanity. Why are you mm-hmm. being so obtuse about this? But in 2017, Northwestern University received a document, quote, from a reputable dealer that had been in the hands of a private individual apparently since the time of the trial. In it, doctors Hulbert, White, and Healy all conclude that they are, quote, insane, quote, suffering from a psychosis, or that they can't, quote, see right and wrong in any sense comparable to the sense in which it is conceived that the average man sees it, end quote. Oh. oh. Hulbert goes so far as to diagnose both men with dementia praecox, which we t- would today call schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So Crow somehow has an inkling that initially they concluded that these kids were insane, but that Darrow still didn't want to try not guilty by reason of insanity, thinking that they were still more likely to be hanged by a jury if they brought that forth rather than a guilty plea just in front of Judge Caverly. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Healy is next, and he raises some eyebrows. This was one of the few pieces of the trial not reported verbatim, uh, the judge didn't think it was fit for the papers, and he instructed the attorneys and Dr. Healy to whisper it so none of the reporters or ladies would hear it. They tried to they tried to go into chambers to hear this evidence, but Crow was like, absolutely not. I want everybody to know that these guys are sickos. So, yeah. back to this pact. What did Leopold get out of being Loeb's slave? Um, a thigh job. Twice every three months. And then they argued, and then they renegotiated it to every time they committed a crime. Like... Leopold would get to like fuck Loeb between the thighs. Leopold said that he especially liked it if Loeb pretended to be drunk. Leopold said he got more quote unquote thrill and passion out of this than he did with any encounters with women. Uh, he also tried going down on Loeb, but he didn't like that as much. So, I mean, right? They're gay. Whatever. Uh, they did crimes in exchange for gay sex, which is not okay. But of course, like this is 1924. So they're like, these guys are gross. These guys are perverts, blah, blah, blah. Dr. Healy refers to this as a childish pact, telling Crow, hundreds of children, sir, have done it. Like, kids, he's basically like, kids experiment, they do stuff that they later learn as an adult is, like, not an acceptable way of having sex, it's not that serious. Crow is like, what the fuck? Crow says, quote, aren't you ashamed of yourself, doctor, to testify on that matter? Healy says, quote, no, I should say not. I have known a very nice children of very nice families who have gotten through with things of that sort, end quote. Okay. Doctors Gluck and Hulbert say that Loeb told them that he killed Bobby, though apparently never publicly, because at a parole hearing for Leopold, he was asked, uh, quote, he went to his death claiming you struck the final blow that killed Franks and you say the contrary. How do you reconcile that? So although Loeb apparently went on to continue claiming that Leopold killed him, um, he did at least tell these two doctors, no, it was me. Hmm. Hulbert remarks upon Loeb's total lack of a normal emotional reaction to being interrogated, to describing the crime, or to being on trial. Like, they're going through all the, like, their sex pact, like, all the details of the murder, like, all the weird shit that came up in this report, and Leopold and Loeb are just like, ho-hum. Dr. Bowman, this ductless glands guy, this didn't really go anywhere. What were we expecting? He says that, Le- <laughs> he says that Leopold has a prematurely calcified pineal gland, and the defense points to a random neurology book that says... Uh, this would, according to Nina Barrett, cause all kinds of disturbances of the blood gases and sugars, and according to this textbook, have, quote, a direct effect upon the functioning of the mind. So I was like, what 
does calcifying your pineal gland mean? Apparently this is a pretty, like one of the pretty normal things that your body does as it ages. Um, at the time it was thought that there, his pineal gland should not have been that calcified until he was about 30 or so. But nowadays we know that like calcification of the pineal gland does begin as early as the teens. So that is not, that is not what made him kill Bobby Franks. Surprise. Got a new, got a new excuse for getting out of a meeting, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) My pineal gland has just been calcifying really fast lately. Just just because I'm almost 30. Yeah, it's just (laughs) bad times. Closing arguments. Assistant State's Attorney Marshall goes through several dry legal examples explaining how there can't be degrees of responsibility and Leopold and Loeb must die because they will not fucking drop this thread. The papers report that even Leopold and Loeb, who alternately smirked and ignored or listened closely and relished the gross details, complete their eyes just totally glaze over during this part because this is very boring. Again. Aw, is it? <laughs> Poor guy. Assistant State's Attorney Savage gives this heartrending speech about how the judge needs to show everyone that Cook County is a safe place to raise your kids, how it would be unfair to everyone who's gone to the gallows before if Leopold and Loeb don't hang, to show that the law applies to the rich as well as the poor. Um, this one hit home because in part of Leopold's confession, he had suggested to the cops that a friendly judge wouldn't let him hang. And when that was brought up at first, Caverly got really, really mad because he was like, wow, this guy thought that his dad was going to buy me? Fuck him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Savage says, quote, if we do not hang these two most brutal murderers, we must we might just as well abolish capital punishment. And I'm like, you're so close (laughs) to being right. (laughs) Right. uh, Right. Like, uh, like we should abolish capital punishment, whether we hang these two brutal murderers or not. But whatever. He's like, because it it will mean nothing if we don't if we don't hang these two guys. And at this point, people actually, like, during Savage's speech, people start actually crying. Jacob Franks has to leave the room. And at this point, for the first time, Leopold and Loeb actually look kind of sobered, and they stare at the floor. According to the Tribune, quote, it was the first time that eyes have been moist with sympathy for the victim. Mm. Now, Walter Baccarat comes forward, and he argues that they're not trying to downplay how bad the murder was or Leopold and Loeb's responsibility for it, but to illustrate that they are emotionally and morally also children, and that the judge should consider this in sentencing them. He likens the judge to a father deciding how to punish a child and says, quote, it requires more understanding, it requires more intelligence to investigate, end quote, why a child did something wrong. Smart. For Darrow's closing arguments, an absolute mob of people tried to come and hear what he had to say. The judge had to take a short recess. He had to interrupt Darrow. He had to call in more cops. A bailiff broke his arm, holding back the crowd. And of course, someone fainted. Oh, match. <laughs> I heard that Clarence Darrow's closing argument was 12 hours long. It it went over like a few days, like day yeah. two or day three. We're still listening to Clarence Darrow. I'm just going to read yeah. an excerpt, which I really liked. Meaty quote. Meaty quote. Um, hang on real quick. I'm going to find where the quote began because I just dog-eared the page. (laughs) We did plead guilty before your honor because we were afraid to submit our cause to a jury. I would not for a moment deny to this court or to this community a realization of the serious danger we were in and how perplexed we were before we took this most unusual step. I can tell your honor why. I have found that years years and experience with life tempers one's emotions and makes him more understanding of his fellow men. When my friend Savage is my age, or even of yours, he will read his address to this court with horror. I am aware that as one grows older, he is less critical. He is not so sure. He is inclined to make some allowances for his fellow man. I am aware that a court has more experience, more judgment, and more kindliness than a jury. And then, Your Honor, it may not be hardly fair to the court, because I am aware that I have helped to place a serious burden upon your shoulders. And at that, I have always meant to be your friend. But this was not an act of friendship. 
I know perfectly well that where responsibility is divided by 12, it is easy to say, away with him. But, Your Honor, if these boys hang, you must do it. There can be no division of responsibility here. You must do it. You can never explain that the rest overpowered you. It must be by your deliberate, cool, premeditated act without a chance to shift responsibility. We did it, Your Honor. It was not a kindness to you. We placed this responsibility on your shoulders because we were mindful of the rights of our clients, and we were mindful of the unhappy families who have done no wrong. And then he offers some stats about the death penalty in Illinois. In the whole history of Chicago, 90 people had been, have been hanged. Only three of them pled guilty. And uh, I believe he also points out in Chicago, no man under 21 has been sentenced to death on a guilty plea before. He says, I heard them talk of mothers. Mr. Savage is doing this for the mothers, and Mr. Crow is thinking of the mothers, and I am thinking of the mothers. Mr. Savage, with the immaturity of youth and inexperience, says if we hang them, there will be no more killing. My God, this world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today, and killing goes on and on and will forever. Why not read something? Why not study something? Why not think (laughs) instead of blindly calling for death? Kill them. Will that prevent other senseless boys or other vicious men or vicious women? No. I was laughing. Like, read a book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I am always every day. I encounter someone who I'm just like, damn, read a book. That's why Abby's laughing. Yeah. Anywho, (laughs) (laughs) then Savage is back and he says, um, "I don't know." Savage back, back again. No, my bad. I misquoted. Savage back. Oh. Dare reaches the end of his arguments by saying. He says to this court, meaning uh, Assistant State's Attorney Savage, give them the same mercy that they gave to Bobby Franks. Is that the law? Is that justice? Is that what a court should do? If the state in which I live is not kinder, more human than the mad act of these two mad boys, I am sorry I have lived so long. End quote. Damn. Old man Darrow is guilt tripping, y'all. So Darrow's closing argument, and this is critical, it turns the case from how should we punish these murderers to... This is an opportunity for us to transcend like the societal barbarism that gives rise to murder in the first place. And he positions mm-hmm. it as an opportunity for the judge to show that he and society are better than Leopold and Loeb, which is pretty masterful. Now Crow comes up for his closing arguments. He goes, quote, Dr. Healy says that that is a childish compact. I, I'm sorry, but Crow just being horrified by the idea of like two dudes like sucking dick is is, is very overwrought and silly to me. <laughs> I say if Dr. Healy is not ashamed of himself, he ought to be. My God, I was a grown man before I knew of such depravity. Really? Really, Really? Crow? You never thought of putting your dick somewhere kind of unorthodox ever until you were an adult (laughs) and someone told you about that as an option? All right. They talk, I'm sorry. They talk about what lawyers will do for money, but my God, I am glad that I do not know of any lawyer who would get on the witness stand and under oath characterize an unnatural agreement between these two perverts as a childish compact, end quote. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed. Crow is still (laughs) creeped out, as I mentioned in the first part of this episode, by the fact that Leopold and Loeb took off Bobby Franks' pants first and drove around with his body until it was dark out and then put him in a culvert, dousing his face, genitals, and any recognizable scars with acid. Crow Mm. also points out, and um, kind of warning ahead again for possible sexual assault, Crow also points out that Franks' rectum was dilated, although the coroner found no evidence of recent forcible dilation. Crow says that, well, there probably was evidence, but it was washed away because they put him in a drainage pipe. Bachrock is, is essentially like, the coroner said it wasn't the result of forcible dilation, and you can't drop this bombshell in closing with no evidence. He's like, mm-hmm. so what is your evidence? If the, if the coroner said that there was no forcible dilation, what is your evidence that this points to anything? And Crow says that the evidence is that they're perverts and that they undressed him weirdly. 
And the judge is like, oh, okay, well, we can't really use that. <laughs> so Crow, he tries to deliver a masterstroke and it blows up in his face. He tries to get the judge like indignant about Leopold and Loeb. He reminds the judge like he's he's like Leopold said that he thought a friendly judge would save him from the gallows. And he's essentially like, you know, do you want people to think that that's what happened here? Um, he's trying to get Caverly to get mad at Leopold again for suggesting that, but instead, instead, Caverly thinks that Crow is bringing this up to question his integrity. Like, he thinks that Crow is saying, like, I think this is maybe the kind of judge you are, prove me wrong. Oh. And Caverly, quote, orders stricken from the record the closing remarks of the state's attorney as being a cowardly and dastardly assault upon the integrity of this court, end quote. And Crow is like, oh. So as I mentioned, Caverly takes two weeks to make this decision. He receives threats from the pro and anti-death penalty sides of the public during this period. In fact, one time he's at a funeral for a friend and someone calls his wife at home and says, you know, Judge Caverly has been shot. His corpse is lying at the entrance to Calvary Cemetery. And she is (gasps) she is freaking out. She jumps in a car along with one of the guards that has been at their house during this whole period. And they zoom over to Calvary Cemetery and Caverly is like, what are you doing here? And she's like. For fuck's sakes, like someone told me that you were assassinated at this ca- at this at this um, at this funeral. And Caverly's just like, Jesus Christ, because initially he was going to go up to like a like a cabin. He was going to like do like a weekend retreat in the woods type thing to continue contemplating this. But at the point mm-hmm. where someone almost gave his wife a damn heart attack saying that he had been assassinated at a funeral, he's like, all right, fine. I'm just going to make the decision now. The Frankses as well are plagued by rubberneckers, hate mail, and people mail in threats to kidnap their other two surviving children. And of course, they're right down the street from the Loeb mansion. So they end up selling the house for 60 grand, which I looked up is today $913,000 or so. And they move into the Drake Hotel. Albert Loeb, meanwhile, he's at his mansion in Charlevoix, Michigan, and he suffers another heart attack. Mm. Leopold and Loeb, meanwhile are doing just fine. They're visited by reporters from all over. They follow their own coverage obsessively, and they even eventually decline interviews from out-of-town reporters because they only get the local papers and they want to see what everybody has to see about them. So if it's published in a non-local paper, they won't get to read it, and that's unacceptable. They're also visited by six members of the Chicago Cubs. They participate in the Prison Baseball League and Loeb trades batting tips with Gabby Hartnett. Loeb says he's glad the trial is over. Quote, more time to make a name for myself in the Jail Baseball League. Leopold says that in case he is hanged, he is, prepa- he is preparing a farewell speech, and he hopes there is a jazz band and, quote, plenty of hard punch. What? Fuck off. The Chicago Daily News says, quote, anything short of the death penalty is bound to create in the European press a storm of criticism of American court procedure, as well as ironic comments on the influence of wealth in such cases, end quote. Now, I'm not sure. I thought this was interesting. A storm mm-hmm. of criticism, if they don't die, a storm of criticism of, in, of American court procedure and, in addition to that, comments on the influence of wealth. So I'm like, is is the implication here that the European press will think, like, America isn't hard enough if they don't kill them and also think that it's because they were rich? Because I'm like, nowadays, we're one of the few, like, America is, like, way outside the bell curve in terms of incarcerated populations and in terms of state-sanctioned killings. Like, nowadays, Europe is like, oh, God, America's killing somebody again. How fucking embarrassing. But apparently in 1924, they'd have been like, America didn't kill them? Softies. <laughs> I'm sure someone somewhere has written about, like, how those attitudes change so much in Europe and not here. But I haven't read that, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yet. So wow. for the verdict, only families, attorneys, and press are allowed within a block of the courthouse between the sentencing and Leopold and Loeb getting sent back to jail. Caverly himself arrives with 12 bodyguards 
And despite the one block radius being completely clear, the streets around the courthouse are packed with 5,000 people. So Caverly goes into his verdict. And first, he kind of attempts to placate Crow by suggesting that he's not overly moved by the testimony of, of how disturbed Leopold and Loeb are. Then he attempts to kind of placate Darrow by suggesting that he's not really convinced that sexual assault was involved, even though Crow says so. And There's Caver- not enough evidence for that. I agree. Yeah, he's like, he's like, don't worry, Daryl. Like, I, I'm not buying Crow's thing about the sexual assault. And he's like, don't worry, Crow. I'm not really buying Daryl's thing that these kids are so messed up, you know, that this, that that should impact how they're punished. Yeah. He says, quote, in choosing imprisonment instead of death, the court is moved chiefly by the consideration of the age of the defendants, boys of 18 and 19 years. This deter, and I, ah, boys of 18 and 19, right? Like, there is so much, like, I don't know. It reminds me of how nowadays, like, if a white kid of 18 or 19, like, sexually assaults someone at a frat party, he's a boy. But if, like, a black kid is shot, uh, like, if a black teenager, 18 or 19, is shot for having, like, you know, an eighth or whatever, like, he's a man. So it, Mm -hmm. and they kind of, they play to this sort of, like, boy-man dynamic um, in their testimony because the prosecution always referred to Leopold and Loeb as Mr. Leopold and Mr. Loeb. And the defense always referred to them by their childhood nicknames, Dickie and Babe. So I think it is interesting that uh, Judge Caverly uses the word boys here, boys of 18 and 19 years. He says, quote, this determination appears to be in accordance with the progress of criminal law all over the world and with the dictates of enlightened humanity. More than that, it seems to be in accordance with the precedents hitherto observed in this state. To the offenders, the prolonged suffering of years of confinement may well be the severer form of retribution and expiation, end quote. Mm. So they're both sentenced to life for murder plus 99 years for the kidnapping, and they are sent to Joliet prison. Yep. Bye. In the aftermath. Crow says, like all other law-abiding citizens, when the court pronounces his decision, I must be content with it, because his decision in the case is final. While I do not intend and have no desire to criticize the decision of the court, I still believe that the death penalty is the only penalty feared by murderers, end quote. So I don't know about Assistant State's Attorney Savage. Remember Darrow said, like, years from now, uh, Assistant State's Attorney Savage is going to look at what he's going to look upon his address to this court with horror. So I don't know about Savage, but as Darrow kind of predicted... Crow actually went on to change his mind about the death penalty, and he actually offered yeah. to write a letter supporting Leopold's release in one of his parole bids in the 1950s. Clarence Darrow says, quote, I have always hated capital punishment. This verdict so encourages me that I shall now that I shall begin now to plan a definite campaign against capital punishment in Illinois, end quote. And he went on to even greater fame in the Scopes trial and the Ossian Sweet trial, which happened the following year, and the Thomas Massey trial in 1932. Harold Holbert uh, had to have police protection at his house. He had gotten lots of letters saying that if Leopold and Loeb weren't sentenced to die, he would die instead. Sam Edelson, the uh, the Franks family's attorney, said he was disappointed in the verdict. Sven England, remember the chauffeur who accidentally blew their alibi wide open when yep. he said that he was working on the red car all day? Yep. He continued to work for the Leopold family for at least another 20 years. And uh, oh. when Meyer Levin was writing, was working on writing Compulsion, uh, Sven England actually drove him out to Stateville Prison to talk to Leopold about maybe collaborating on it. Wow. The Leopold and Loeb families, um, one of, I think it was Loeb's uncle, spoke on behalf of the Leopold and Loeb families and said, quote, here are two families whose names have stood for everything that was good and reputable in the community. What is there in the future but grief and sorrow, darkness and despair? Albert Loeb, uh, Richard Loeb's father, died in October of that year, 1924. 
Um, Nathan Sr., Nathan Leopold Sr. and Foreman Leopold had their mansion torn down. Nathan Sr. remarried in 1927 and died in 1929, following surgery, possibly on his gallbladder. Foreman and Sam, Leopold's brothers, ended up changing their last names. Flora Franks, which I really appreciated that they asked Flora Franks and that there was this really good quote from Flora Franks in there because, like, all she is is this weird, like, super distraught, like, overwrought lady. Mm-hmm. Like, in the in this whole coverage, you know, they're like, she's a, a mask of grief. You know, she believes that her little boy will come back to her, all this shit. Um, but then she has this, like, very cogent quote on her opinion on on the trial. And I, I don't know, I like it more than just about anything anybody said about it. Mm-hmm. She says, quote, they did such earnest work and all did their duty, but Bobby didn't believe in capital punishment. He wrote about it and read his article at school and he told me it was wrong. And somehow after that, how could I ask it? I didn't want to do or say anything to interfere with the prosecution, of course, but I didn't want them to hang. End quote. Oh, that made me tear up. I know. I was like, Flora. Jacob Franks says that he's just glad that it's over. He died in 1929. Hmm. Leopold and Loeb in the aftermath of the verdict request steak and onions and chocolate eclairs to celebrate. I, I just, I hate them so much. I just, they don't do any, that's a lie. One of them does something that I agree with, which is getting murdered in prison. But, (laughs) Hmm. did they get their steak and eclairs? Probably. They're Ugh. right, they're rich kids. They kinda got whatever they want in jail and prison. This is so, like that um I was reading about one of the guys that they arrested for storming the Capitol building, how his mother came to his aid and was like, if he doesn't he because he hasn't eaten in a few days. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, his mother like came and was like, um, if he doesn't eat organic food Oh, the... like he gets really sick. Yeah, I did hear about this guy who they're calling the QAnon shaman. I don't like that because he's obviously not a shaman of any kind. Um, yeah, oh, but they talked weird. about he, how he had like a total organic diet and how he was going to get one in jail. Meanwhile, I have read about like Jewish and Muslim people in jail being like given yeah. ham and cheese and told to just eat the cheese if they don't like the ham. Like, yeah, fuck these hoes. Yeah, anyway. fuck everybody. Anyway. After some time in Juliet prison, they're both moved to Stateville, where at the age of 29, Loeb was slashed to death. He was slashed 50 times with a razor by a 23-year-old thief named James Day, who claimed that Loeb came onto him. He bled to death in the infirmary with Leopold by his side. Day was found not guilty. Probably ran a gay panic defense, honestly. Well, and there's true. there's a legend that a story in the papers ran with the lead, quote, despite his erudition, Richard Loeb today ended his sentence with a proposition, which would have been... Oh, man. But no such article has ever been found. So, I don't know. He didn't seem remorseful at all. Loeb, after no. After the trial. He, so he was probably being a smug fucking dickwad. I don't know. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame. I don't know. Not for gay reasons, fucking... but just for being crappy person reasons. Is yeah, him we're... being gay has nothing to do with it. He was a shithead. Thank you. So Leopold has a much longer end to his story than Loeb. It seems that Leopold was the same callous bastard as ever for his first few years in prison. However, he later said that starting around 1929, the year Jacob Franks died, he began praying daily for Bobby's soul and peace for the remaining Frankses, and he began to wish that he could take Bobby's place. In 1949, Adlai Stevenson commutes his sentence from life plus 99 to 85 years, making him eligible for parole in 1953. I'm really surprised, sorry to cut in, 
I'm really surprised that they didn't separate them when they sentenced them to prison. Yeah, it they seems were in the same prison. Yeah, I know that's an odd choice. I <clears throat> so I also really like um, the hunting accident. It's called mm-hmm. the hunting accident: a true story of crime and poetry by David L. Carlson, and it takes some liberties. Like there are a bunch of scenes where Leopold is getting stuff from his father in prison, and it it, it slightly goes into the dynamic between Nathan Senior and Nathan Junior. But the book is set like the prison start of the book. Um, begins right after Loeb is killed. And by that point, Leopold's dad was already dead. So they take some creative license. Um, But they do suggest that Leopold and Loeb... So, like, part of Leopold's parole hearings was, like, all this good stuff he did in prison. But uh, the story that's put forth in The Hunting Accident is that he got all these really cushy, nice-sounding, you know, good-for-the-community-type jobs in prison because he was rich. And so you know, he could buy his way into working in the prison library instead of working in the prison machine shop. So yeah. eh, kind of a yeah. double-edged sword. Anyway, um, in his testimony before the parole board in 1953, Leopold says that he still cannot identify a motive for the crime. Quote, it still remains for me the completely motiveless act of a socially and emotionally immature boy, but I can assure you that remorse has been the daily companion of the man who grew out of that boy. End quote. He also cites Clarence Darrow's memoir written during Loeb's lifetime, that Loeb that named Loeb is the murderer. So he's like, Clarence Darrow says that Loeb did it, and he wrote this before Loeb died. So it's not like he wrote this thinking, well, now that Loeb is dead, maybe I can help out Leopold by saying that Loeb was the killer. He's like, both of us were alive. He had no way of knowing which one of us his his memoirs would help, if anybody. So that's why you should believe what Clarence Darrow said. Leopold says that he has tried to be a model prisoner, volunteering as a test subject in malaria treatment experiments as part of the war effort, reordering the prison library, teaching inmates, working as an x-ray lab tech, and psych nurse. Um, he also, and this is um, what the hunting accident is about, he had a blind, uh, in, the, in the hunting accident, again, I don't know if this is creative license because there's not, not, not a whole lot of information about this guy out there. Um, mm-hmm. This Italian-American Southside wannabe gangster named Matt Rizzo uh, was blinded attempting to rob a store and he was sent to Stateville. And in the hunting accident, they just have them as cellmates, Leopold and Rizzo. And Leopold taught Rizzo how to read Braille. And uh, Rizzo actually went on to be paroled and became a writer, actually. Hmm. Taught to, and he, before he only had like a, like a less than an eighth grade education. And Leopold taught him how to read Braille and got him really interested in literature and uh, had him read Dante's Inferno. So in the hunting accident, um, the story is that Matt Rizzo wanted to take his own life. He wanted to jump from the highest gallery in the prison and Leopold struck him a deal. He's like, first you have to read, you have to get through Dante's Inferno, and then I'll take you up there. Because obviously he couldn't get up there on his own, and you can't just go wherever you want in the prison, but Leopold had privileges because he worked in the library and was rich. Uh So they get to the top gallery, and um, Leopold mentions, he he makes some passing reference to uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso, and Matt Rizzo is like, you didn't tell me there was more to the story. And he's like, yeah, there's three there's three parts of the Divine Comedy. And Matt Rizzo decides that he wants to read the rest, and he ends up not taking his own life. Anyway, that was one of the things brought forward at the parole board, was he taught this blind inmate to read. I thought it was cool that it was made into this whole graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the parole effort in 1953 failed, and Leopold's older brother Foreman dies six months later. So his former classmate, Meyer Levin, wants to write this book about the crime, as I mentioned. And as I mentioned, Sven England drives him down to Stateville so he can discuss a collab with Leopold. But Meyer Levin obviously wants to write about the crime and the trial. And Leopold is like, I don't want to write about the crime or the trial at all. I will write about any other part of of my life, but not that. 
So Levin goes ahead with his 1956 novel Compulsion based heavily on the murder of Bobby Franks. Prison regulations bar Leopold from reading the book, but he does so in secret at least four times. And he resents Levin's embellishments, including additional crimes he says he didn't commit and more overt homosexuality. And he believes that the book will damage his parole case. Uh, Meyer Levin writes an article in Coronet Magazine urging the Leopold be paroled, but Leopold is like, I'm not impressed. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I'm not, you're not going to win me back over. He thinks, he's like, Levin just did that because he felt bad because his novel, like, damaged my parole case. Leopold retains the services of Elmer Gertz, a friend of Foreman's, to help him stop Levin from further adapting compulsion into, like, a play or a movie or whatever. He also wants help publishing his own memoir, and he wants help securing parole. So if you recognize the name Elmer Gertz, I didn't, but then when I read more about him, I was like, oh, damn. He apparently represented Henry Miller in the obscenity case around his novel Tropic of Cancer, and he defended Jack Ruby. Oh. Right? So in 1957, I don't quite understand how, like, there are certain times at which you can ask for parole, and then at, at some point he was asking for clemency because he wasn't eligible for clemency yet, but if they denied it, he could apply for parole again, something like that. Anyway, there's a 1957 clemency bid, and Meyer Levin appears to tell the board that, like, no, compulsion is not, it's a novel, like, nothing in compulsion should influence the clemency decision, I'm in favor of releasing Leopold. Um, old friends come forward to testify that Loeb was a bad apple in their fraternity and that, quote, the worm crawled over to Leopold, and that if Loeb hadn't been able to sway Leopold, he would have found someone else to be his sidekick, so intent was he on committing the perfect crime. The clemency bid is denied. Then there is a 1958 parole bid, and by this point, Gertz is fully in control of Leopold's legal matters, because during the clemency bid, he was, like, still in the process of taking over from prior counsel. One of the assistant state's attorneys from the time of the crime offers to testify. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and Carl Sandburg testify. Uh, Carl Sandburg was, he was the one who told the parole board about him teaching Matt Rizzo to read Braille. And Damn. Earl Stanley Gardner, I was like, who? Abby, are you familiar with Perry Mason? Yeah, I am familiar with Perry Mason. <laughs> the writer who Matter. created Perry Mason was named Earl Stanley Gardner, and he also got involved in efforts to release Leopold. Because I am actually 80 years old and watch Perry Mason and <laughs> murder like, she wrote. Abby absolutely watches Perry Mason. She's going to be <sighs> like, the guy who wrote Perry Mason? Yeah. Listen, he I can involved. fangirl about Perry Mason. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's a good show. So state's attorney, the guy who's the state's attorney by this time, not one from the time of the crime, Benjamin Adamowski says, quote, if it had not been for the fact of all this attention, you might get into an entirely different concept, end quote, meaning like basically if you hadn't gotten fucking Eleanor Roosevelt and Carl Sandburg involved, like you would just rot like this shouldn't change the decision. And I'm like, once again, you are so close. Like, right. <laughs> this tells me not that like Leopold shouldn't be released because other people don't get attention. It tells me that if if we paid enough attention to incarcerated people, we would eventually realize that we can release most of them. Like mm -hmm. this, <laughs> you're you're right. Attention. If they if he hadn't gotten this attention, it would be totally different. But like that should not be the norm. The norm. The attention to incarcerated people should be the norm. Whatever. Correct. State's attorney Adamowski. Yeah, so close. <laughs> Once again, so close. So close. Leopold's statement to the parole board, he says, quote, with school studies, what you learn from books, I had no trouble. But what you learn from people, from your friends, I missed entirely, end quote. He says that he hung on Loeb's every word and wish, and though he didn't want to kill Bobby, he was so emotionally stunted that at the time, Loeb's approval seemed more grave to him. And he says, about five years, he says, I was, I was like five years behind on my emotional development. He's like, about five years after I went to prison, when I was emotionally the age that I physically was when I committed the crime. He says he was, quote, shocked by the fact that he hadn't felt things deeply earlier. And from that point, he, quote, began to live for others as well as himself. 
So Leopold is paroled. The conditions include no staying out after 10 p.m., no communication with other prisoners or former prisoners, no going to, quote-unquote, places of questionable reputation, no possessing a weapon, no associating with anyone with a police record, no leaving the county without permission, no changing his address or his employment without advance notification, and no seeking publicity. And all of these, except for the last one, he violated at some point or another, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he did say that he didn't want publicity. He said all he wanted was the chance to become nobody. So... This uh, Brethren Service Commission, which I believe is a Catholic organization based in Chicago, sends him down to San Juan to be an x-ray tech since he had done that in prison. And in exchange, he receives room, board, transportation to work, and $10 a month. He went on to marry a widow named Trudy Feldman, and he also went on to get an MSW, a Master's in Social Work, from the University of Puerto Rico in 1961. So in 1963, he's released from the conditions of his parole, and he takes his wife on a European tour, and he finally visits Chicago to see his parents in Foreman's graves. As in life, they all remained in death a short walking distance from the Frank's mausoleum, which by the time of Leopold's final Chicago trip in 1971 contained the bodies of Jacob, Flora, Bobby, and Jack Franks, and the family plot of the Loeb's. They're all buried right by each other, except for Leopold and Loeb. Nobody knows where Loeb was buried after being murdered in prison. And Leopold died later on in 1971. His corneas were transplanted into two recipients on the wait list, and his body was donated to science. The end. Yep. And his birds were donated to the Field Museum. Huh. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. Yeah. You can go see them right now if you If you want to so see 2,000 dead birds that a murderer collected as a child, and nobody thought Sorry, that was Kelly. weird. <laughs> Sorry. Should have been should have content. Content warning. Kelly. Birds. <laughs> 2,000 birds. um well wow thank you for that deep dive yeah thank you again to the hunting accident and to the leopold and Loeb files by nina barrett yeah if you would like to um subscribe to more of our content i post lots of great funny memes and so does ellie (laughs) um we are on instagram Instagram queers for his podcast. Nope. See, this is why I do that. The social media. <laughs> this is why we you do this. On, I tried. One I job. tried because you did it. We, you did the whole episode and I was like, I'll do this for her. No. <laughs> We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Queers for first podcast. Um, Patreon patrons get up to three bonus episodes a month and they're pretty fucking funny. Um, and we are also, and he's doing like a dance, like we're funny. We're fun. I'm like, is this the word funny dance? We're on. It's a we're funny shimmy. We're fun. Yeah. I was like shimmy. That's the word for him. Like not quite a dance. Um, we are on Twitter <laughs> at queers fears pod and you can email us podcast queers for fears at gmail.com. We accept ideas for new episodes. We accept pet pictures. That's about it. Uh, invitations to collaborate. We accept those. Other than that, I don't, I don't really like getting emails. I'm sorry. Abby likes the emails. <laughs> You're literally telling like, don't don't email us unless you have a cute cat. Um. <laughs> don't waste my time in my inbox. Jesus. Email us with whatever you want. Abby at the very least. I will read, read them. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Stay creepy. Stay queer. Stay out of trouble. You took my line. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Okay, Marvin cut that. Here, Abby's, Abby's gonna do it. Marvin's not gonna cut it. They're gonna just troll us and leave it in here. I literally times. said maybe seven things this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, go ahead. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay queer. Stay creepy.
Uh, don't commit murder just because you're rich. Or I was going to say for any reason. I don't know. I'm sure there's. <laughs> no, we're not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say on a hot mic. That <laughs> I'm just saying. Hot mic. Cut this. <laughs>